0: Um, Today, our Bible reading is from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, all the way to the end of the chapter, in verse 33. Ephesians 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must love his wife as he loves himself, and his wife must respect her husband.
1: Well, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for us. But if there's one passage that I've been dreading preaching on, this is probably it. Uh, So we've chosen it for Father's Day. We really nailed our planning this year. Uh, I'm Mike Phillips. I'm the campus minister here at St. Jude's in Parkville. Uh, I'll add my welcome to to you if if it's your first time with us. Uh, And I am nervous, not because I think this is a bad passage or it needs explaining away. I'm just going to stand in the centre. How about that? But because I know how it reads to modern ears, like a, a relic of a patriarchal age best left in the past. But more than that, I know that for some of us it's a traumatic passage to listen to because of the voices that echo in our heads, telling us to submit to our husband, to obey him, ignoring or denying genuine suffering. And if that's you, uh, firstly, I'm so sorry. Sorry that we've failed to listen. Sorry that we failed to love you better. We can't undo what's been done, but I hope this morning to provide a corrective to that myth. And so for all of us today, as Eleanor said, let's look after ourselves. If you do need a break or to step out, please feel free. Enjoy the sunshine or the college lounge across here. I can grab a drink of water. There's bathrooms in the foyer as well. Uh, and I encourage you to access support that, that would be helpful for you, whether it's one respect You can chat to myself or Ali, who you've seen up the front today. As I said, I know these words have been used against some of us to silence or compel, and so it can be almost impossible to hear these words as the voice of our good God, when all we can hear is the voice of someone who is using these words for their own selfish ends. And if you have had this passage used against you, I'm not trying to reopen old wounds for you today, but we do need to talk about this passage precisely because of how it and others like it have been misused. What it does mean, what it doesn't mean. We need to ask God to help us gain a glimpse of the good vision that he has for marriage. A vision of how the gospel shapes marriage, just like it shapes every aspect of our life, including how we conduct ourselves as husbands and wives. And for many of us who are single... This is not an irrelevant passage either because because misuse of this passage uh, doesn't just affect marriages, actually. It can affect the whole culture of how we relate to one another as men and women. Verse 21 calls all Christians to submit to one another. So all of us, men and women, married and unmarried, we all need to understand what submission is and what it isn't and be willing to submit. And all of us have a role to play in helping our community to be a Christ-honoring community, where all members can flourish, where abuse and violence are not tolerated, and where those who have experienced violence can find safety and healing. Let's take a moment uh, to pray as we come to this passage. Heavenly Father, your word critiques and challenges every culture, And you know we find these words particularly challenging for many of us. But we know that your words bring life and hope. So please help us to see the hope of Christ through these words. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, today's sermon is week three in our series called Love Does No Harm. In this series, we're seeking to bring to light the harm that's caused by family violence and violence against women to let God's word speak into that and to grow as a genuinely loving community where, as Romans 13 says, love does no harm. Uh, In week one of our series, John Forsyth, our vicar, gave us an overview. He helped us to see the prevalence of family violence and violence against women in Australia. Uh, We saw that across Australian society as well as within the church. He challenged us to reflect on how we love from 1 Corinthians 13. Last week, Ali focused on the harm that abuse and violence cause, how it's used to control and coerce, and the roots of violence in those who choose to abuse. This week, I'm focusing on common myths, how Christian teaching has been used to control or coerce or to justify violence against women, uh, often in a family context. We'll be talking about marriage. We'll be talking about repentance and forgiveness. We'll be talking about divorce. Because if we're sloppy in our use of the Bible, if we're not careful readers of the text, then the life-giving words of scripture can become a life-threatening weapon. So before we jump in, a couple of preliminaries. Uh, When I use the language of family violence, I'm using the language of our national framework It describes family violence as violent, threatening or other behaviour by a person that coerces or controls a member of the person's family or causes the family member to be fearful. So it's important to remember in this definition that it's not only physical acts of violence, physical aggression that we're talking about. We're also talking about emotional abuse and manipulation, tracking someone using technology, intimidation, threats importantly uh, also for us today spiritual abuse spiritual abuse is where theological ideas or uh, rituals or scripture are used uh, or misused to control or coerce or to keep someone in fear so sometimes i'll say violence sometimes abuse I i want us to remember that we're not just talking about physical acts of violence here Um, But about any behaviour that coerces or controls or creates fear, the the exact opposite of what love does, right? We've said before that family violence can affect anyone, regardless of background. It can be by a husband against a wife, it can be from a wife against husband, it can be against children or by children, it can be against parents or by parents or extended family members but we also need to be aware that women are much more likely to experience violence from an intimate partner than men are. So this is a gendered issue. And particularly as we look at spiritual abuse, I'll be focusing on violence against women. But I do recognise that it's not only women who experience abuse. Well, with all that in mind, let's get into Ephesians 5. Uh, there's an instruction for wives and an instruction for husbands here. For wives in verse 22 wives submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord and then to husbands in verse 25 husbands love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her and when we ask why why should wives submit and husbands love it's spelled out in the next few verses it's because marriage is a picture it's a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church and so how husband and wife relate to each other or to reflect how Christ and the church relate but it's also it's not a perfect picture it's not exactly the same for a start husbands are not the saviour of their wives Paul spells this out in verse 23 really clearly He says, Christ is the saviour of the whole church. As Christ is the head of the church's body, of which he is the saviour. Right? Men and women. um, Yeah, Christ is the saviour of the whole church, both men and women. My job as a husband is not to save my wife. Alexandra doesn't relate to Christ through me. She's a full member of the church. She has her own relationship with Jesus. She's saved by Christ, not by me. So if it's a picture, but it's also not identical, then we need to ask, how are husbands to be like Christ and how are wives to be like the church? If it's not in every way. Because there are lots of things that Christ does for the church. Christ loves the church. Christ dies for the church. He sustains the church. He teaches and guides the church. One day he will judge the church as he will judge all things. But Paul doesn't say that husbands are to do all of these things for their wives, does he? All he says is that they are to love. To love their wives. The examples that he gives are how Christ died for the church, and then he talks about feeding and caring for the body. So this is how husbands are to be like Christ. At no point does he say... Husbands, command obedience from your wives. At no point does he say, require submission or or make decisions for her or take control of the family. When Paul says husbands are the head, like Christ is the head of the church, he's not actually focusing on authority or control or command. He's talking about responsibility. Our responsibility to love. We husbands are to love our wives as Christ did the church. Uh, four weeks ago, if you were here, uh, Rebecca McLaughlin uh, sat on this stage next to me. She made this point that Christ gave up his life to crucifixion for the church. And that's the models for husbands. Then um, she said, Mike, I'm watching you. It was, it was a little bit scary. This is the kind of Love that wives are called to submit to. If wives are to submit as to the Lord, well, this is how all of us submit to the Lord—to His generous love for us, not to His domination of us. So, how should we interpret submission here? Let me outline three uh, three interpretations that you might hear but only two of which I actually think are tenable. So option A is that love is doing what is best for the other person and submission is doing, well, pretty much what is best for the other person. And so in practical terms, uh, if this is your interpretation, I think it's a valid one, then if there isn't already an established hierarchy, then when we apply love and submission, they actually end up looking practically identical. Just as all Christians are called to submit to each other in verse 21, so we know all Christians are to love each other. And so the commands to love and submit end up looking in practice um, practically identical. This could be called an egalitarian position in terms of how it applies today. Submission is simply how love gets expressed uh, when you're less powerful in a relationship. And that was certainly the case for women in the ancient world, in the context that Paul is writing to. So that's one possibility. Uh, Option B, we could say that, no, there there is a lasting difference. Husbands are the head. And, And what does that mean? Well, Jesus says that leadership is about service. So the husband is the primary servant with the, the responsibility to take initiative in serving his wife. And wives are to submit to his sacrificial love, to accept it, to serve in return. That one seems possible to me as well. Option C, which I don't think is plausible, but you might hear, is that the husband is the head and therefore he gets to make the decisions. He's ultimately responsible for the obedience of his wife and his kids. So he needs to keep them in line. No, this is wrong. This is not even true of Christ and the church. Christ gives us agency to make decisions. He doesn't make them for us. We're each accountable for our own behaviour, not for others. Any interpretation that doesn't focus on the sacrificial love called for from husbands isn't doing this text justice. So, husbands, this is not a license for us to exert our preferences over our wife or our family. This is a command for you to do what is best for them, to lay down our life for them, to lay down our preferences for their sake. It's a command to listen, to give agency. And choice not to decide things for them. And I emphasize this not because I think you don't get it, but because we, we have testimony of Christian husbands using verse 22, wives submit to your husbands to, to justify their abusive control. It, even at times physical aggression against their wives. As though God wants their wives to put up with that. No, that's wrong. If you're wielding, verse 22, as a weapon against your wife to get her to do what you want. If you're blaming her for not submitting. If you're saying she has a hard heart and that's the problem. You're disobeying God. You're sinning against her and against God. You must stop. God commands you to love your wife. Nothing more and nothing less. Christ gave his life to make the church radiant. It should be our aim for our wife too, to see her radiant, flourishing, thriving. One of the obstacles to acknowledging that you are using abuse is fear. How could you even start to acknowledge that you might be abusing your wife? that your pattern of behaviour is destructive to her in the ways that Ali spoke about last week. If that's you, let me say two things. Firstly, your best hope of escape is Christ. He died to make the church holy and blameless. His death can wash away even your sin. There is hope in Christ alone. Secondly, the path of repentance is costly. Grace is not cheap. Listen to what genuine repentance involves. Um, this is from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter seven, verse 10 and 11. It says to us, "Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and, and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. Repentance is not just, sorry, I won't do it again. It's not just, sorry, now you have to forgive me. Repentance is not, sorry, I just get angry sometimes. Or sorry, if only you are more submissive. Repentance with an excuse is not genuine repentance. It might be worldly sorrow, but that leads to death. Repentance with putting blame on the other person is not genuine. Repentance without taking responsibility to get help and change is not genuine. What does godly sorrow involve that leads to repentance? It leads to alarm, we're told. You should be alarmed at your own behaviour, not trying to excuse it. It leads leads to an eagerness to clear ourselves, Not, not by covering it up, but by making things right. It leads to a readiness to see justice done. Genuine repentance means acknowledging that you have done wrong, that you can't hide behind excuses or blaming others you won't minimize it and it means giving up control of what happens next because justice is out of your hands you don't get to be your own judge genuine repentance means accepting the consequences of what you've done it means getting help to change it means accepting that you have damaged your relationships and if if they ever get repaired it won't be on your terms or timeline This is genuine repentance. And when we repent, genuinely, whatever the sin, we can be confident that Christ forgives. So what about for those who have experienced abuse? God forgives. Must you, if you've experienced abuse... Sometimes those who choose to abuse use forgiveness as a weapon. I've said sorry, now you have to forgive me or you'll be sinning. Well, let's unpick this one a little bit. Uh, To start, we need to remember that forgiveness is not the same as trust and reconciliation. Forgiveness is a free decision to not seek revenge, to not try to get even... To entrust that person to God and His justice. It's freely given, can't be demanded from us, and it's costly. For God to forgive us cost the life of His only son. He did this freely. We didn't twist his arm. So forgiveness is not a trivial thing, especially when the sin is so destructive. Sometimes we think we're forgiving when I think we're just overlooking and saying that wasn't really a big deal. And that's okay. Love covers over a multitude of sins. But sometimes the choice to forgive is the choice to say that is a big sin. By saying I'm working towards forgiveness, I'm saying that is an issue, not it doesn't matter. And for us mere mortals who are not God, it may take weeks, months, years to truly forgive and let go of a desire for revenge. And even then, if there is forgiveness, it's still different from trust and reconciliation. There might be forgiveness, it doesn't mean there is trust or reconciliation, it doesn't even necessarily mean there should be. Because forgiveness doesn't mean that we forget about what happened. It doesn't ignore the damage that's been done. It doesn't mean there are no consequences for the sin. Specifically in the case of marriage, forgiving doesn't mean you can't seek safety. You can. It doesn't mean that things go back to how they were. Abuse and violence damage people and they damage marriages. You don't need to pretend nothing has happened. Because forgiveness is not the same as trust. I think we know this, really. If someone had a history of financial crime, would we make them our treasurer? Even if they had genuinely repented, we would assure them of Christ's forgiveness, but we still wouldn't ask them to handle our money, would we? Because sin breaks trust. Trust takes time to rebuild. And the deeper the breach of trust, the longer it's going to take to rebuild, if at all. And without trust, there's no reconciliation. Too often, uh, we've conflated these ideas, I think, as Christians, because we look at God and we say, well, He forgives me and He reconciles me. And He does them all at once when I turn to Christ. So why aren't human relationships like that? Well, that overlooks the fact that when you reconcile with someone who has sinned against you, as God does with us, you're actually taking a big risk. They might hurt you again. Sadly, we do that all the time to God. We say we'll trust Him. He takes us at our word and reconciles with us, and then we sin against Him. It's like we throw it in His face all over again. But God can take it. He's all-powerful. He's infinite in love and mercy. He can give and give and give and not be exhausted. This is amazing grace. I I can't do that. You can't do that. And God doesn't expect us to. Christ is the Savior, not us. He will make things right when He returns. He will restore what has been lost. He will wipe away every tear. No, we can't do that. But we live in hope for that day. So what do we do in the meantime? What if a marriage is in ruins because of the sin of abuse and violence? Is the wife just meant to submit and put up with it? Suffer in silence and endure no there are other options i don't think there's a command to leave but there's also no command in scripture to live in the same house as your spouse there's no command in scripture to put yourself in the way of harm if there's an opportunity to escape it if you're able to leave you can Sadly, sometimes Jesus' words about divorce have been used to shame women fleeing violence. In Mark chapter 10 verse nine, Jesus says, "What God has joined together, let no one separate." Is Jesus trying to trap women in harmful marriages? No. Rules against divorce were designed to protect women because of the vulnerability they faced if they were divorced and the tendency for men to divorce women for trivial issues. Yes, divorce is sad when it happens. It's, it's not what God wants for our marriages. Jesus says it's a concession to, to hard hearts. And someone choosing to abuse, I think that's a pretty good example of a hard heart. Secondly, separation is not the same as divorce. In some cases, I want to be careful here, but in some cases, separation can be a way of saying, this is not acceptable. This is not a godly marriage, and I won't allow it to continue like this. If separation then leads to divorce, well, I would argue that it is the person who chose to abuse who broke that marriage not the person who chose to leave for the sake of their own safety or perhaps the safety of children. Separation and divorce are sad. They're not what we want for our marriages. But the same is true of abuse and violence. And leaving an abusive relationship may well be the most God-honouring decision possible. So we must not judge one another or jump to assumptions if we meet someone who's separated or divorced we don't know the story they don't owe us an explanation of it let's welcome them with love because ultimately as christians our hope is not in marriage our hope is not that our relationships will pan out perfectly that our lives will be smooth and straightforward and neat our hope is not in our marriages. Now, our hope is in our heavenly marriage. Not a husband who's a feeble picture of Christ, Christ Himself. Who doesn't use His position to His own advantage, as we read in Philippians 2, but gave up His life for us. He doesn't manipulate or control. But by his love he makes us radiant, without stain or blemish, holy and blameless. Yeah, we long to see beautiful God-honouring marriages, just as we long to see beautiful God-honouring singleness. But these are not ultimate. Christ is ultimate. He says, come to me, all you who are wearied and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls. Let's take a few moments in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your love for us seeks our good. So we pray that our marriages would reflect uh, the love that Christ has for the church. Pray that our marriages would be places where both husbands and wives can flourish. Uh, That they would honor you in every way. And Father, we pray for our church as a whole, that we would glorify you in the way we relate to one another, specifically in how we care for and love those who are experiencing or have experienced abuse or separation or divorce. Father, we long to be a source of hope and good news both to one another and to our wider community. So we pray that your goodness would be seen amongst us uh, and somehow that might bear witness to the great love that Christ has for his church, to our wider community as well. In Jesus' name, amen.